Well, please, congregation, I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings 2, page 390, I believe, in the Pew Edition Bibles, 390. Rather than dealing with the whole chapter this morning, as I had originally planned to do, we're going to deal instead with verses 1 to 15, in order that we might deal with verses 16 to 24 and points 4 and 5 of the sermon in greater depth this afternoon, saving article 17 for next week. I learned the lesson the hard way of trying to do five points in one sermon. So we'll visit the second half of the chapter this afternoon. But as I come to verses 1 to 15, you could say we're coming to the end of an era. The mantle is being passed down from one prophet to the next. And in this time of transition, the Lord reveals to us something of who he is. This is God's word, 1 Kings chapter 2, or 2 Kings 2, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah and had fallen from, that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him. And bowed down to the ground before him. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to the end of our series of the life and ministry of Elijah, I think it's only appropriate that we should briefly recount some of the great things that the Lord has done through, throughout the course of Elijah's ministry. To the prophet Elijah, God has confronted wicked kings with their sin and idolatry. You recall that's how Elijah's ministry had, had began, suddenly appearing before King Ahab to say, there will be neither dew nor rain all of Israel except by my word. And so to the prophet Elijah, God has, has shown the wages of sin and idolatry is death as he has, as the, as the fields of Israel began to crack and wither, so too did Baal's supposed divinity begin to crack and wither. And so Israel came to see where idolatry always leads, namely to a parched land and a parched life. But to the prophet Elijah, God has not only revealed something of his just wrath, but he's also revealed something of his amazing grace. Even those, even to those not belonging to the people of Israel, we saw how how the word of the Lord went beyond the borders of Israel and found a new home in, in the house of that widow from Zarephath. For although Baal had not seen her, and although Baal had been unable to help her, the God of Israel had seen her, and the God of Israel was able to help her, and so much so that, that until rain finally fell from the skies again, her jar of flour did not run empty, and her jug of oil did not run dry. And then when her son became sick, even to the point of death, it was the prophet Elijah who cried out to the Lord and, and prayed that the life of the child might come back into him. And, and so it was. The prophet Elijah, fire fell from heaven on Mount Carmel and consumed the altar. And in answer to Elijah's prayers, God didn't just send a little rain, but a great rain. For where sin had increased, the grace of God abounded all the more. And so the prophet, through the prophet Elijah, God's people, the faithful remnant living in Israel, have been greatly encouraged. By the ministry of the prophet Elijah, God's people, that faithful remnant living in Israel, have been greatly comforted to know that, that although things seem to be going from bad to worse, as, as one wicked king comes to the throne after the next, that in the midst of how things seem to be going horribly wrong, Elijah revealed to them that, that, that their God was the one who was still in control. That God was the one who was yet bringing his word to pass in their midst. To be sure, the Lord has done great and glorious things to the prophet Elijah. But now Elijah is going away. For the Spirit tells us in verse 2 that the time has come for God to take Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind. And so there is from the very outset of our passage this morning this sense of foreboding. There is this sense of, of anxiety and trepidation as, as Elijah's departure begins to sink in. What will the future of Israel look like with Elijah not in it? Who will courageously confront the wicked kings now? Who will rebuke Israel's blatant apostasy now? And who will speak on the Lord's behalf now that Elijah is going away. What's going to happen? How are things going to turn out now? 
And so you can certainly understand the sense of trepidation that fills the hearts, not only of, of Elisha to some extent, but also of these younger prophets in training, these Old Testament seminary students, if you will, as Elijah makes his, his last round, so to speak, going from one school to the next. It's the end of an era. And everybody knows it. They know that today is the day that God is going to take Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind. If you paid careful attention to some of the geographical locations that the narrator has mentioned in our passage, then perhaps you noticed how, how the prophet Elijah and Elisha are essentially retracing the steps of Joshua during the days of the conquest, but they're doing so in, in reverse. When Israel's conquest of the promised land began, where did Joshua begin? You may recall the conquest of the land began at the Jordan River, where Israel walked through on dry ground. From there they came to Jericho. And after the walls of Jericho came tumbling down the Lord's grace, they then moved from Jericho to Ai, just east of Bethel. And after God gave Ai into Israel's hands, Israel made camp at Gilgal, from where they went to war against those five kings of the Amorites. But in our passage this morning, we read of Elijah walking that same path, but in reverse. They, they begin in Gilgal. And from Gilgal, they make their way to Bethel, and from Bethel to Jericho, and from Jericho to Jordan, until they cross over onto the other side. What is the Lord doing, these prophets must be wondering. Has, has the time of, of gospel conquest finally come to an end? And so you can almost hear the sense of trepidation and the tension growing as Elijah and Elisha move from one place to the next. At each stop along the way, the, the sons of the prophets press Elisha with the question, don't you know, Elisha, don't you know that, that today is the day that Elijah is going away? To which Elisha responds, I do know it. Let's not talk about it. Yes, this is happening. But don't speak of it. And this sense of fear and trepidation, you could say, reaches its climax in verse 7 where we find these 50 young prophets standing at a distance as Elijah and Elisha cross over the Jordan on the other, to the other side. What now? Elijah is leaving. Now, in addition to the trepidation of the prophets that we see in these first seven verses, we also see the testing of Elisha. Because at each step along the way, what does Elijah say? He says, please stay here. And what Elijah is doing here is Elijah is testing Elisha. I trust you'll recall that the nature of Elisha's call all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 19. There he was plowing his father's fields, when suddenly Elisha, Elijah appeared out of nowhere and, and threw his cloak upon him, that symbolic gesture symbolizing that Elijah was being called by the Lord and that he'd be equipped by the Lord for prophetic service. And I trust you'll recall how Elisha responded to that call. He bid his friends and family goodbye, burning all the bridges that, that could take him back to that old manner of life. Rather than delaying his commitment, he, he severed all his connections. He left the family farm for good that he might give himself fully to the prophetic work of the Lord. But now things are starting to get real. 
because the baton is about to be passed down from Elijah to Elisha. And so in the midst of the anxiety and trepidation, Elijah tests Elisha three times in verse 2 and verse 4 and verse 6, inviting Elisha to hang back and to let Elijah continue on his way on his own. And so doing Elijah, it would seem, is testing Elisha's commitment. He's testing Elisha's commitment in a similar fashion to that of, of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 19 when he would press Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Elijah is testing Elisha's commitment. He is testing Elisha's commitment to carry out the prophetic calling that the Lord has placed on his life. He is giving Elisha the chance, so to speak, to to turn back before things get real. You see, Elijah's burden is about to become Elisha's burden. And all of Elijah's prophetic tasks are about to become Elisha's prophetic tasks. And Elisha needs to step into Elijah's shoes, being every bit as committed to the cause of the kingdom as Elijah has been for all these years. But at every point, what does Elisha say? He swears an oath before the Lord, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you, but I will go with you. And so Elisha passes the test. He will not allow the trepidation of the prophets to cause him to turn his back on his calling because that calling has come, not merely from Elijah, but from the Lord himself. And so we come to verse 8. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them could could go over on dry ground. Elisha stays close to Elijah. And by so doing, he gets to witness up close this great work of the parting of the waters that he walks alongside Elijah on dry ground. When the river closes behind them, they're not only separated from the school of the prophets, but Elijah is being separated from all his former labors of Israel. Those labors now lay behind him. In response to Elisha's devotion to God's cause, what does Elijah say? He says in verse 9, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. It's a rather open-ended question, isn't it? It's a question that's fairly familiar to that question that the Lord asked of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 where God appeared to Solomon and said, Ask what I shall give you. And as we heard all the way back in 1 Kings 3, how one responds to a question like that reveals something of who that person is. How a person responds to to that question reveals what lives deep down in a person's heart. And that's certainly the case here for Elisha because what does Elisha ask for? He says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. On this request, Elisha is not being greedy. Elisha doesn't make this request because he wants to to outdo Elijah, because he wants to be more well-known than the prophet Elijah. 
And while it is the case that Elisha, you could say, is going to be twice the prophet that Elijah was, his ministry is going to last twice as long, he'll perform approximately twice as many miracles. But Elisha's ambition is not to outdo Elijah, to get a better name than Elijah. But rather, Elisha is here using the the language of the Old Testament law, wherein the, the oldest son had right to a double portion of his father's property. You see, when an old man would would die in the Old Testament, his property would be divided up into equal shares, but the oldest son would receive a double share. And this is what Elisha is asking for here. Elisha is asking to be treated like a firstborn son because spiritually speaking, this is what He's been with Elijah all these years. He's been as a son to the prophet Elijah. And furthermore, by asking for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, Elijah isn't simply asking for a double portion of Elijah's boldness or Elijah's temperament, but in a deeper sense, he's asking for a double portion of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who was the power behind Elijah's entire ministry. That's what Elisha is asking for here. I wonder, congregation, if we were to be asked the same question, if we would give the same sort of response. Ask what I shall give you. How would we respond? Would we pray for a double portion of the Spirit? It's good and right for us young people to look at the older saints among us who love the Lord and to say, Lord, give me the, the fa- a faith like that. A faith that clings to the Lord. Lord's Day 45 reminds us that God is indeed gracious to give His Spirit. God is gracious to give His Holy Spirit. But only to those who groan inwardly and pray continually, asking God for these things. And so while Elisha's request certainly is a bold request, it's not a proud or an arrogant request. Rather, Elisha's request is a humble recognition of the fact that without the living power of the Holy Spirit, his life and his ministry will be of no avail. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, he is not able to faithfully engage in all this prophetic work that God has has called him to do. For the living presence of the Holy Spirit, says one pastor, is the primary qualification for effective ministry. This that we discover, for example, when we come to the book of Acts. When when deacons need to be selected in the book of Acts, what kind of men did, did the church select? They chose men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, Acts 6, verse 3. And when Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the, the glory of Christ, what, what does the Spirit tell us? The Spirit tells us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, Acts seven fifty five. When we come across Barnabas in Acts eleven twenty four, what are we told? We're told that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith with the effect that a great many people were added unto the Lord. And this is why Elijah responds to Elisha's request the way that he does, saying, 
You have asked a hard thing. Elijah says this because the Holy Spirit, of course, is not really Elijah's to give. The Spirit is, is a gift of the Lord. And so Elijah leaves this request to the Lord. He leaves this request in God's hands saying, If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. In other words, if God will grant Elijah the grace and the eyes to see something of his majestic glory as Elijah is is taken up into heaven, that will be a sign for Elisha that his request has been granted. And so we come to the climax of the story in verse 11. And as they still went and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Notice, first of all, that Elijah was not taken up in the chariots of fire, but he was taken up by the whirlwind. That's a common misunderstanding, one that I've been guilty of myself. Elijah is taken up by the whirlwind. But the chariots and horse of fire do separate the two of them. And in the midst of that separation, a whirlwind comes and takes Elijah up into heaven. And so Elijah, like Enoch before him, and like the Christ who comes after him, is translated into glory. And this, you could say, is the final stamp of God's approval on Elijah's ministry. Elijah's glorious ascension serves as as an enduring testimony to what Elijah's ministry had had centered on all along, namely that, that the Lord is the one true God of the universe, not Baal or any other false god like Baal. As we sang from Psalm 68, God shall arise and by his might put all his enemies to flight. Ours is the God who who rides in the clouds. Ours is the God whose chariots are mighty to behold, twice ten thousand thousand fold, causing the mountains to quake and tremble. Not Baal. Not anybody else. Baal was believed to be the God of the winds and the rain. Baal was believed to be the God of fertility and life. Baal was believed to be be the God of victory and power. But as Elijah is translated into heavenly glory, Baal is once again shown to be the worthless, powerless, and false God that he really is. Not that the spirit of the ascended Christ would have us to confess once again this morning. As Elijah is taken up in a manner that can only be described as a foreshadowing of the ascension of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is summoning us to see and believe once again that our God is the one true God. That there is no one else like our God in all the world. Verse 12, Now as Elijah saw this, he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Elisha was Elijah's spiritual son in the faith. And as Elisha cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, he is speaking of Elijah himself. Elijah was the spiritual father not only of of Elisha, but also of the school of the prophets. They're called the, the sons of the prophets. Elijah had been called by God to lead them in the truth of his word. And in so doing, Elijah, you could say, was 
Israel's strength, for he was the primary word-bearer of the Lord. According to God's word, we know that the Israelites were not permitted to place their trust in horses and chariots. We find that in places like Psalm 20, verse 7. But instead, they were to depend on God for protection. And so in effect, says Phil Riken, you could say that Israel's prophet was Israel's defense system. Metaphorically speaking, Elijah, as God's word-bearer, was himself the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Israel's defense system was never her swords or her shields. Israel's defense system was never her horses or her chariots. But Israel's defense system was always the Lord and the word of the Lord, just as it is for us today. That as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, although we walk in this world, although we we live in this world, we're not waging war as the world wages war. For the weapons of our warfare, says Paul, are not of the flesh or of the world, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so our our weapons of war are not weapons of of flesh and blood. They aren't the weapons of the world. but, But we take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because God's Word is that which is triumphant and powerful. And that's what God has shown us throughout the entirety of Elijah's ministry. God's word is that which is triumphant in power. God's word cannot be broken. God's word cannot be striven against. God's word is always brought to pass. His word is triumphant. And so as Elisha now removes his own clothes and tears them into pieces. He does so in the confidence of the triumphant power of the Lord. As he takes up Elijah's cloak, Elijah's mantle, he does so in the confidence of the power of the Word of God. Elisha has received the double portion that he asked for. And all this is confirmed by what we read in verses 14 and following. Verse 14, then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen on him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. You see, boys and girls, when Elijah struck the water, what he discovered was was that although Elijah was no longer with him, the God of Elijah still was. And so as he cries out, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And as the waters part for Elisha, that's God's way of saying, the God of Elijah is is right here. I'm right here. I am still with you. Elijah has, has gone away, but I have not gone away. Verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, opposite them they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. 
And so the servant has become the master. You see, congregation, although God's instruments may change, God does not change. And that's what the previously anxious prophets must likewise come to learn. Elijah is no longer with them, but the God of Elijah still is. And so the work of gospel conquest will surely continue in this transition from, from Elijah to Elisha. And this is our confidence as well. But to quote Dale Ralph Davis, our help is in the name of the Lord, not in the charisma of his servants. Yes, God's leaders may change, but his power persists. This is why we can sing those words based on Psalm 90, O God, our help, and age is past, our hope for years to come. Because although we ourselves are constantly changing, although our world is, is constantly changing and rapidly changing, it would seem, our God is not changing. But our God remains the same. He is the same yesterday as he is today. And although he may be pleased to use human instruments, and he surely is, he is not dependent upon them. Yes, Elijah had been a great tool and an asset in the service of God's kingdom. But Elijah is just that. He's just a tool in the hand of the Lord. Yes, God had been pleased to use him, but the kingdom of God and the progress of that kingdom does not rest on, on Elijah's shoulders. Just as that progress does not rest on, on our shoulders this morning. Christ said that he would build his kingdom and the gates would not prevail against it. God himself is the builder of his kingdom. And he's pleased to use human instruments. He's pleased to use us in, in the spread of that kingdom. He doesn't depend on us. He is the builder. And he is faithful to build that kingdom day by day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. Yes, Elijah's departure may have marked the end of an era, so to speak, but it's only an era with a lowercase e. Because everything the Spirit has endeavored to show us in these last number of chapters has not been to show us what a great man Elijah was. Rather, show us what a great God the Lord is. And so we're reminded in these verses of transition that God's power is not limited to a particular era. We sometimes like to think that it is, but it isn't. We sometimes look back on history and we say things like, oh, if only we could get back to the way things used to be. If only we could go back to Calvin's Geneva. If only we could go back to the Synod of Dort's the Netherlands. But when we give in to that kind of thinking, always looking to the past, we close our eyes what God is doing in the here and now, in the present. Yes, amazing things took place during the ministry of Elijah, even as, as Gentiles came to know the God of Israel. We mustn't think for even a second that the conversion of our own covenant children is any less amazing. 
the preaching of the gospel as it goes forth today behind this pulpit and every pulpit is, is just as powerful as it was in the days of Elijah. No doubt it would have been easy for the people of Israel to look back and say, well, I guess the best days are behind us. Especially those living in the northern kingdom where they haven't had a godly king in over 80 years. The days of David are long gone. But as God parts the waters in verse 14, what he's saying to Israel and what he's saying to us is that my strong arm hasn't atrophied. My strong arm hasn't atrophied since the days of Moses in the Red Sea. My strong arm hasn't atrophied since the days of Joshua and the Jordan River. As the waters part for Elisha, God is saying to the church then as well, as to the church today, behold, I am still building my kingdom through every age. I am faithful to my word. It doesn't matter how warped your culture may become. It doesn't matter how, how corrupt your political system may be. For I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, Psalm 2. And all my enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. This congregation is the God of Elijah. This is who he is. He's the unchanging God who remains faithful to his covenant promise and faithful to his covenant people from age to age the same. His strong arm is still mighty. His arm hasn't atrophied. It hasn't grown weak. We can be sure of that this morning with a view to the future. With a view to the return of the ascended Christ who even now is seated at God's right hand in glory and majesty and honor and strength. Began our study of the life of Elijah and his ministry by noting that we might well be inclined to ask the question, who was this man? What kind of man was he? But I'll note again what I noted all the way back then, that as James 5 tells us, Elijah was a man just like us. He had the same nature as our nature. He was a man just like us. He was a man who, who lived in an evil day in an increasingly darkening world. But just like us, Elijah was a man whose help was from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Elijah was a man just like us because his God is our God too. Our God is still the living God. He's still the God who goes to war with the false gods of the world. He's still the God who, who hears the prayers of his people when they call upon his name as he heard the prayers of Elijah. He's still the God who takes care of his office bearers, who preserves them when they are in despair and in despondency. And he's still the God who gives victory even over death itself. For although we are not likely to be taken up to God in the exact same manner as Elijah was, it may be. It may be that Christ returns in the clouds today and takes us up in a great whirlwind, as it were. 
but even if he tarries, with the same power and the same immediacy, shall our own souls be taken up into heaven to Christ its head after we've breathed our last. Ours is still the God who gives victory even over death itself as he did for Elijah. The God of Elijah is our God too. And he bids us this morning to trust him and to trust his word as the prophets did, looking unto Christ, the, the great prophet the great overseer of our souls, who as our ascended Savior not only died for us, but who even now lives for us and continues to make intercession for us, we heard in our assurance of pardon, even as he promises that he is coming again. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, We thank you, O God, that we can say it. The God of Elijah is our God too. We thank you, O God, that in the midst of transition, you remain the same and your faithfulness endures. And we behold that faithfulness even as we make this small transition from the Mennonite church to St. Anne's Community Church to recognize that you are a God who leads his people in triumphant procession as we spread the aroma of Christ everywhere. We thank you, O God, for the comfort of knowing that your strong arm has not grown weak, that your strong arm has not grown weary, but you are still the God who goes to war with the false gods of the world, and you're still the God who is strong and mighty to take care of us and to take care of your church. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into the glory of the ascension of Christ. And as Elijah is taken up into heaven, we've been given a picture of Christ's glorious ascension. We thank you, O Lord, that he lives for us, the conquering king over death itself, that his promise is to come back for us. And so, Father, we pray that he would come, that he would come quickly, even as we pray in his name. Amen.